Good morning, fam. Uh, most of the time I get invited to speak is because somebody else canceled, and so it's pretty cool <laughs> to follow suit. Nothing's changed. Uh, my name is Lo, and I, I love Jesus a lot, and I'm super thankful to be able to share in the Word with you all this morning. Um, I like y'all's, uh, y'all's doctor still. He's pretty cool. Um, I've had a chance to hang out a few times. I've learned a lot about the guy in a short amount of time. The, the biggest thing I'm learning uh, is that he's very much a man of faith, because uh, he's only heard me preach twice, and he's invited me to come and do it here today. Um, I like to think of myself as pretty grounded, um, not a loose cannon at all, uh, but because I'm very passionate about Jesus, I, I talk very fast and get like overexcited about sharing the word. And sometimes that goes well. I think the mesmerizing thing is that I shove a bunch of words in a really short time span. Um, the, the, the dangerous thing is that sometimes the words get off the rails of relationship and then they, they say things like, it makes sense up here and it doesn't make sense when it comes out here. You know what I mean? Uh, I was preaching at, at, at the Harvest Campus uh, at the Women's UMC uh, about a month ago, and I was talking about like, this great fear of missing out. And I was trying to say I have a great fear uh, of, of missing out. I have a bad case of FOMO. What came out was I have a bad case of HOMO. And I was like, wait a second. I need to fix that really quickly because they're very different statements uh, completely. Um, the game plan, though, is that God's sovereignty and his grace will be much bigger than my foolishness. That's, that's what we're praying for? We cool with that? Sweet. Uh, if you are cool with it, I'm going to pray for us really quickly. Ask God to bless this and saturate this time uh, with his presence. And we're going to get jiggy. Sound good? So good. Abba Father, you love us way more than we could possibly perform for you. Um, your heart is inclined towards your people. As you told Moses, you've seen, you've seen what your people are carrying and what they bear. And just as no one was praying for Moses in the time, nobody's praying for me. Uh, right now, we need you, your presence your power, your anointing, the truth of your word to be made manifest here in our lives. And so uh, we pray that there will be no distractions in this time. Uh, we pray that the enemy would be silenced, that our flesh would be stilled, and that our hearts and our eyes and our ears would be attentive to your word. We love you. So your name we pray. Amen. Uh, I do this really random thing called poetry. Um, most folks, like, don't listen to spoken word poetry. I see snaps. Shout out to you. Um, most folks don't get jiggy bespoken word poetry. I started doing it when I was like, I don't know, 12 or something like that. Uh, and then tried to become like a rapper. Uh, my game plan was to be signed by Young Money Cash Money. It hasn't worked out yet, but we're still hoping. Um, the game plan was to get signed by them. They never really worked out. Then Jesus became real in my life. And I started like doing poetry as a way of communicating the gospel. So this morning, I'm going to share a poem with you guys. Is that cool? Sweet. Uh, this poem does not really have a proper name. Uh, if you have a name afterwards, you can give it one. Most folks have just been calling it the morning poem, and you'll see for obvious reasons. Uh, preface for the poem is I wrote it in a time when the Lord first started making sense of my life, and I saw how there was a person who I was very close to uh, needed that same grace and was not often received. Um, oftentimes the church failed to extend it the way that the church kind of is known for doing sometimes. Uh, but then the Lord began to pursue and woo uh, this person, I got to see like front row seats, like, oh, this is what transformation looks like. Um, so this poem's called The Morning Poem, sort of, and hope it encourages. <sighs> she, she's fighting. She's fighting against the morning. Her love bears grief and her smile is still in mourning. Her heart seems broken beyond repair. Her hopes have changed with past pains and anguish, and she prays that tomorrow doesn't come. She doesn't trust the sun, because she's been burned too many times before. 
And the people she has trusted seem to hurt her all the more. They've impersonated light and put death on what was pure. So now everything that's bright just reminds her of the morgue and she hates it. She wished she could erase all the faces that made themselves shine by pointing out her dark places. Now every sunrise, she hides as if her place is to run from the sun so that she doesn't disgrace it, they told her. That God could never fix what she had broken. That she was just the sum total of all her worst moments and that she was born a sinner, so that's what she must be. And the heavens have no place for all the sinners like she, so she runs. She runs from the morning. She listens to the serpent as she eats from the tree and gives Adam the day while she walks in the eve. And whenever God calls, she hides in the leaves, ashamed to be seen. The lie she was told she believes and says, who could ever love this darkness of me? She'll play with suicide like a song on repeat. She could tell you every word and could sing them on key, see her nightmares. They'll go nowhere till they know where they're not welcome. Yet she's been losing sleep. Her spirit's getting weak and we have seven days of peace that we could offer to her need. Because the harvest bears fruit when the laborers intercede. But we don't want to admit that we've been there before. Because exposing someone's lack makes us feel like we have more. But showing someone they're poor doesn't automatically make you rich. While blowing out someone's candle doesn't mean that yours is lit. We exist to show how God's grace has set us free. Not to be Pharisees or condemners of the weak, but that we were saved by grace, not by works or a letter. And we were broken too until the cross put us together. See, Christ is the true sun that will rise and shine forever. So he tells her, if you fear that my mourning will harm you, I will come to you and be your knight in shining armor. I'll save and wrap you in the arms of my grace. I'll step down from the brightness of my glory to the grave because I know that darkness must flee whenever light comes. And it may take your eyes a few moments to adjust and realize that I became the darkness that was and I died so that you would have the brightness of my love. His love rescued us when we did not deserve it. Sacrifice his glory as a king to be a servant and thus should go to show us all the way that we were purposed. That it is not our greatness, but our brokenness he works with. Because it's not until you're broken that he comes to make you perfect to the girl who's tired of fighting against the day. Jesus shed his blood so he could wash your sins away so that when he returns, he'll find a bride without a spot or blemish. And he'll heal you of your scars because by his scars you are forgiven. He'll wash you like the dawn and every day that you are given. And he will make you perfect on the day that he is finished. But until that day comes, trust the beauty he is forming and know that his mercies come new every morning. It is morning. Good morning. I pray that you would never fear tomorrow, that whatever made you hollow, God can use that vacant space to fill with grace. May his light seep through your every scar and every wound. May the things that you've been through be what makes him shine in you, for you are the explicit reason that the sun rose, so you are the underlining glory of a sunrise. Good morning, beautiful. You make morning beautiful. Mercy meets pain just to make his glory viewable. You show that God has grace, strength, mercy to save, and patience to give. Yet another morning, so good morning. Beautiful, you were worth waking up for. Amen. Thanks, friends. Uh, that poem, for, for me, one of the first time I started sharing poetry, I, I felt like God was saying very, very clearly, not just to like my sister who like was like kind of, I guess, allegorically like representative of the woman, uh, or just like people in general, but like the church as, as a body, as a bride of Christ, is a very disqualified bride. Um, she makes a lot of weird decisions. Uh, she drops the ball a lot. She's not perfect. She is not without flaw. And yet the Lord consistently pursues her, has a heart for her, sees her in brokenness. It doesn't say, oh, you're so full of shame. I want nothing to do with you, but is, is interested in pursuing us in the middle of our night. Even when we have no desire for the morning, he pursues us. And what I learned is that God is a God that calls after us and he pursues our hearts, which is a beautiful thing that we love. 
And my friend J.D. Wall talks about how there's, there's two parts of the gospel. The first part of the gospel is this beautiful story of God pursuing us. But the second part is where we then begin to pursue him. And the world becomes transformed by that pursuit. That there's one method of loving God or love from God is not earned. Love from God is given to us freely. And then 1 John talks about how love for God has to be cultivated. That takes time. It's what our camp would call uh, growing in Christ-likeness, sanctification. That our hearts become more postured towards him and the things that he's interested in. And so calling is a very, very important thing that God calls after our hearts. But the invitation is not to stop at calling. It's to lean into character. Like, who is this God that loves us? Who is this God that's, that's faithful to us? And what happens when we get compelled by his narrative, compelled by his story? In this Exodus chapter 3 passage we just read, God is calling out to Moses. And there's a beautiful story that we read. And actually, if you have a Bible open, it's Exodus 3. We're going to be going through every verse. But as God is calling after Moses, he's telling him, this is my plan to, to redeem my people, to deliver them from their oppressors. I've seen all that's going on in Israel, and I'm going to bring them into a good and spacious land. But before God fast forwards to tell Moses what he's going to do in their life, he's very intentional about showing Moses who he is. Calling is a good, a good idea. Calling happens in the story, but also God's revealing of his nature and his character. That seems to be the focal point of the story. I have a cousin who, when we were all younger, said he wanted to play in the NFL, as most kids do uh, when you play football. And my little cousin doesn't respect the dynamic of older little cousin because he's a swolger. He's a huge kid. And I'm not talking about like a guy that just works out upper body. You know what I'm saying? All the way around swolger. Not just upside down Dorito, big top and bottom. You know what I mean? Big guy. And, and we always say we want to go to the NFL one day, but then we start playing football and then grown people start hitting you and you're like, I don't want it that much. Not that interested. Um, we're all passionate about it. But he, he actually moved beyond just like flirting with the idea. He works really hard, gets a scholarship, goes and plays in college. Then he actually gets drafted. He played for the Arizona Cardinals for two years. He plays in the NFL. And my family saw him get drafted. We all go crazy because we're watching our little guy live out his passion, live out what he thinks he's called to. When we see him catch his first touchdown, in the NFL, we're like, oh my goodness, our little dude is like living out his passion, living out his calling. And it's awesome. It's fantastic. A year and a half ago, he gets injured, tweaks his knee. Uh, he has a couple, time, a couple of months to rehab, but eventually he gets cut from the roster. And so he loses this thing he felt passionate about. While the game uh, was able to be played, it loved him back. When he was unable to serve it, though, it cut him dry. And that's the thing, the weird part about pursuing passion is sometimes our passions serve us well, but sometimes our passions, they don't know how to love us when we can't love them. If we just lean into calling, there are ways in which we're called to something. We have a heart for something. But if it doesn't lean into God's character, even ministry can run dry. If our hearts aren't actually connected to the character of God. I have a lot of passions in my life. I'm very passionate about a six-pack, but I'm also passionate about Krispy Kreme donuts. And those passions conflict sometimes. Our passions, the thing that we want in our hearts, sometimes they don't always go and run congruent with each other. But, but the call and the character of God are always in union with one another. This happens here in Exodus, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Moses is sitting in the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian. And he's leading this flock to the far side of the wilderness. We all know the story. Moses is not here on vacation. I don't even know if he likes his father-in-law all that much. A page ago, he had a, a weird encounter where his passion led him to attack an Egyptian. Passion led him to lash out in violence. Passion led him to, to stand up for his people the best way he knew how, and it led to violence. And his people were like, yeah, that's cool, but also we're going to tell on you. And so he leaves, and he runs away. Now he's in hiding. So passion hasn't served him so well. So he's hanging out in the wilderness at Horeb, mountain of God, and an angel of the Lord appears to him from the flames of the bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire, 
but it did not burn up. And Moses thought, I'm going to go and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. Uh, this is a mildly, um, mildly racist observation. Uh, my wife and I, we decided to go camping for our anniversary, and it was a really fun time. We're in the middle of the woods in this like pitch black, small, tiny cabin, right? And we decide that it'd be a good idea at this time to watch a bunch of scary movies because we're adventurous like that and borderline thugs. And so we're hanging out in the woods, pitch black, we're watching all these scary movies and we're getting freaked out. And one movie after another, we notice a, a pretty consistent theme. Whenever scary stuff happens, it seems to be that most of the white people run towards the weird thing that's happening. <laughs> most of the black folks walk away. <laughs> When this strange sight happens, Moses is either very white because he pursues it. He's like, what's going on over there? <laughs> or whatever Moses sees does not instill fear into him, but wonder. I, I, I want to go and see what's happening over here. Moses is hanging out in hiding, not really wanting to be seen, but he sees something that he has to pursue. He doesn't want to be noticed, but he notices something. He doesn't want to be seen, but he sees something. The strange sight. I'm going to go see What's happening over there? When the Lord saw that he'd gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, said, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Can everybody say, here I am? Yes. Say it like you want to be seen. Here I am. Yes. Very good. Moses is like, here I am. I'm right here. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Then he said, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. What is God doing? Not telling him his plan. Tell him who he is. This is who I have been. This is how your bloodline knows me. This is my character, my nature. My legacy is embedded in who you are because of those who have gone before you. Before he tells him what he's going to do, he shows him who he is. At this, Moses hid his face. He's afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians to bring them out of that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. When I first read this, I was in seventh grade, and I was like, this sounds really, really great, but I'm lactose intolerant. <laughs> and it doesn't stop me from like, eating ice cream and stuff. I, I still do it. The folks around me just don't enjoy that I do, you know? And so well, I was nervous. Like, what does this mean for me getting to heaven? Like, are folks going to be upset that I'm there? And I, I learned later that a land flowing with milk and honey doesn't mean that it's like literally flowing with milk and honey. It means the spacious land is flourishing. It's oozing with God's goodness. It's bursting at the seams. Whatever God says is good. And right now, God's revealing he is that good thing. It's full of me. I have a good place I'm going to bring my people to. Verse 9, the cry of the Israelites has reached me. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. There's a calling there. There's instruction. There's purpose there. But Moses said to God, who am I? Can everybody say, who am I? Who am I? That I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And God has to remind them character again. God does not say, Moses, you have a great degree. He didn't say, Moses, your credit score is awesome. He didn't say, Moses, you come from good stock. He reminds him of his character. Tells him the same thing he told Abraham. Tells him the same thing Jesus tells his disciples before he leaves. Moses, I, I will be with you. I'm going to be faithful to you. No one's praying for you anyway. But my heart, my goodness, my purpose, my character, that's what you carry with you. God is inviting Moses to calling, to passion, to purpose but it's embedded in God's character. 
Notice how God doesn't say, I know you've seen the issues with the people. He says, I have heard the cries of the people. I have seen their misery. God reveals several things about who he is to Moses. The first thing he shows, he's a, he's a God that calls. He's a God that calls after his people. Moses is hiding in the story, not really wanting to be seen. I'd imagine that Moses probably did not even want his name to be called. If you guys remember the story, uh, Moses, a page ago, was born to a Hebrew woman. And at the time, the, the Israelites were growing in number a lot. And the Egyptians were afraid of this. So they said, we're going to put to death all of the, the, the firstborns. Uh, after a while, they got really, really nervous about how much they were growing. So they said, we're going to oppress them, make their, their labor a lot harder. And so in this moment of oppression, Moses' mom finds out she's pregnant. Oh, snap. What does this mean for me? She births the baby, and babies come out looking like gooey meat potatoes, but he's born. And she can tell, oh, snap, it's a boy. What am I going to do? And so she's nervous. She's freaking out. Doesn't know what to make sense of the story. So she says, I'm going to package him up, puts him in this Amazon Prime package, and she ships him in the Nile. And he goes floating down the river. And then Pharaoh's daughter is there at the Nile. Same day delivery. She picks him out. She gets the boy, opens it up. And she looks and says, oh, this is a Hebrew boy. I'm going to give him a Hebrew name. That means pull out, because I just pulled him out of the water. Moses. Moses' name, I'd imagine every time he hears it, there's probably a narrative of shame somewhere in there. Every time somebody calls his name, he thinks, I had to be saved. I had to be pulled out. My mom did the best she could do. This is all she had to offer me, was to give me away. Moses probably does not want to be seen. Moses is probably hoping that if God does call me, maybe he's going to do that thing where he like changes my name, gives me a new identity like he did with Abraham, like he does with, with Jacob. He mentioned those guys. Like maybe he'll change my name. And yet God doesn't do that. He says, Moses, Moses. Calls his name twice. Puts emphasis on it. God makes it very clear to Moses that he is a God that calls. Not who we prefer to be or pretend to be, but who we actually are. Calls out to Moses. I know what the narrative is. I know what you feel about your name. I know what they say about you. I know the, the origins of it. I know the backstory. None of that disqualifies you. It's not about you and what you've been through anyway. It's about my character. My character is really into you, Moses. I'm interested in your life. I almost hear God call Moses' name. And he says, Moses, not the fake Moses, the real Moses. Moses, not the one that everybody likes and you're pretending to be for everybody else's sake, but the real Moses. Every Lord call my name the same way, lo, not your achievements, the real low. I didn't call your name this morning. As the God who calls, he calls who you really are. If we keep reading the story, God reveals more about who he is. He shows that he's not just the God that calls, but he's the God that feels. That verse where it says that God is concerned about his people. Uh, I, I'm a scholar of Google, and Google tells me uh, that the Hebrew term that's used there is yada, yadati, used 83 times all throughout the Old Testament. And the term basically just means that God knows something, but sometimes it's translated as God is acquainted with. So when God says, I know the pains and the suffering of my people, he's also saying, I've been acquainted with the suffering of my people. Sometimes it's translated as experienced alongside. God is saying, I have experienced the suffering alongside my people. Whenever the mother finds out she's pregnant, God's heart begins to race right alongside her. Whenever the slave driver cracks the whip on the back of a slave, God winces. He's not a God that's apathetic and distant. He shows Moses, I'm a God that feels. I've concerned for my people. I have an emotional tether to what you experience and what you go through. We have a strange narrative around God sometimes that he's this weird Spock kind of emotionless dude. But in the scriptures, God feels a lot of stuff. He's a very emotional dude. He sings songs of gladness over us. 
He grieves right alongside us. He, he cries at the funeral, even, even though he knows he's going to resurrect somebody. God shows Moses, before I tell you where I'm going to take you, I'm identifying with where you are. Friend, hear this. God's character for you does not get in the way of his calling, but his calling will not make him bypass your character. God's never going to say, I have you to do this job. Just get over what you're experiencing. I feel right alongside you. The, the fear that you feel, the emotion that you feel, that thing that went wrong, I felt it right alongside you. We used to play this game when I was uh, doing youth ministry, and it was, uh, it was called electricity. What we do is you hold a hand and you squeeze it, and then all the kids who are lined up next to each other, facing right across from each other, they squeeze a hand too. And we're trying to get the hand squeezes to become a current that they pass down eventually. And there's like a bottle or some random object at the end, as you squeeze the hand, they're racing to see who can feel it first, and they grab it. Whichever team grabs the bottle first gets a point. And I would use this game uh, to talk about how we can often be like passive aggressive. Um, most kids learn how to be passive aggressive at the age of like fetus. And so passive aggression is something we all experience. Not just kids, all of us have known somebody, been somebody who is passive aggressive. And the idea behind being passive aggressive is that you feel an emotion that doesn't feel safe to come out. And so you're wondering, can I feel this here? Does anybody else resonate with what I'm feeling? It's very similar to the game. Like I, I have a concern or I'm nervous about something. Does anybody else feel that? Uh, my parents are getting a divorce. Does anybody else feel it? My spouse is calling it quits. They're not supporting this whole ministry call thing. Does anybody else feel that? Financial aid's a real issue for me. I'm not sure how we're paying for this whole weird thing. I'm not even sure what the job looks like after this whole thing. Does anybody else feel that? What is the church going to look like in a few years? How does my faith even align with all that I'm learning? Does anybody else feel this? And what God shows Moses is before he gets the solution for problem, he has healing for pain. I feel it right alongside you. Before he's saying, get over it, we have a job to do. We have a place to go. He says, I feel it right there with you. You don't have to be passive aggressive with me. Shallow in your prayer. Pour more into your study than you pour in a relational time with me. I feel I can handle your emotions. Last thing God shows Moses in this text is that he is the God that calls and the God that feels. And he shows he's, he's the God that sins. That what Moses is experiencing, this, this holy ground moment, this burning bush moment, God doesn't want Moses to keep it to himself. But he sends him. And he goes from this amazement, wonderful experience to a personal, convicting experience. And notice how Moses' language changes. When, when it's amazement and wonder, he's like, here I am. When God says, I'm sending you, he's like, well, who am I? Slow down. <laughs> Amazement is awesome. Passion, awesome. Purpose is awesome. When it starts to dip into character, God's character and our own, we start to have a couple of questions. God says, Moses, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. And don't get it twisted. No one's praying for you. I'm going to be with you. Go carrying me. But Moses has questions. The voice of God is not the only voice that Moses hears, obviously. That voice of shame and that, that narrative of him being disqualified and, and his past, they're all coming up and they're bubbling inside of him. And he's like, I don't know if I'm qualified. I don't know if I'm good enough. Uh, God, surely you wouldn't send me. And what I love about this is that it's a very human experience, right? Like my favorite thing about poetry is that it's not trying to necessarily convince anybody of something, just compel you with something. To tell a story and be as authentic and as human as we possibly can be in the story. I love that Moses has questions. I love that he has doubts. And I love that God shows that he's God for Moses, not just God for Israel. The same way that they're concerned, 
the same way that, that they need my hand. I'm not going to bypass you to get to them. I'm going to minister to you, Moses. He slows him down. All the questions Moses asks, I'm with you. All the, all, all the confusion and, and, and the disqualifiers that Moses feels, I'm with you. God's not like, dude, you, you don't get it. I'm here. I don't think it's his tone at all. It's more like, I got you, bro. Like, we're together. God knows that when we're sent, transformation doesn't just happen to the places that we're sent to. It transforms us. I can't believe that God is a God that comes with me if I never move. I can't believe that God is not a God that's just right here in this moment if I'm not able to venture outside of this space. I love the holy ground context. God brings the reality of heaven to the reality of earth, and it stays right there in that space. But then God starts doing really weird stuff, like leading them by a, a, a pillar of fire and a big old cloud. I have no idea what the heck that would look like. I'd imagine it'd be really trippy, like really wild to see. But in that, it's not like God's just saying, I'm doing a whole bunch of amazement. I'm leading you with my character. You know who I've been. You know who I am being. You can trust who I'm going to be. I am that I am. I will be as I'm going to be. I lean in. Go. I'm sending you. If the father sent the son, then apparently he likes to send children. He's sending us. God is showing Moses he's not giving up on the project of humanity. The same way he wanted to co-create with Adam and Eve, he wants to co-create with Moses. He wants to co-create with us today as well, friends. You're not just called somewhere. You're also going to be sent somewhere. And that's scary, and that's weird, and that's hard, but it leads to transformation. I used to do ministry in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, we were right across the street from uh, Clark High School. Clark High School is a very interesting vibe. Uh, it has a bunch of, like, really, really rich kids and a bunch of really, really poor kids. And we had this church that invited both to come and hang out. We had this really cool gym. And so a bunch of unchurchy kids would show up to play basketball. And eventually it made a really weird environment between the churchy kids and the unchurchy kids. Both struggled with the same sin, by the way. Same issues, same brokenness. Others could afford different drugs. Uh, others could hide their nonsense better than the others could. But they're, it's, they're still broken kids. Kids, by the way, if you're going to youth ministry, the, I think the theological term is they're turds. They're not really, they're not great all the time. Uh, and so youth ministry is a really interesting context in this space, right? Super churchy, super non-churchy. And what we tried to do is figure out how can we bring them together. And the best way we saw to do that was to send them somewhere. To go on a mission trip. We go to Poplarville or we go to Las Cruces, New Mexico. We take them outside of their comfort zones, right? We go to Uvalde, or we, we go to Las Cruces. Anywhere we go, we get them outside of their comfort zone, make them leave their cell phone at home, which they hate that part. We take them somewhere. And as they go, they're transformed. They serve in a story bigger than themselves, and they realize, man, God, he really, really cares about me, but he's much bigger than me. And he's invited me to be bigger than where I am. Beautiful stories happen in this. I wish I could say it was all easy, but there's a, there's a weird thing that happens when you do ministry with non-churchy kids and churchy kids. Uh, you have to explain things you think you would not have to explain, like, hey, maybe don't vape while I'm preaching. Would prefer if you not do that. Um, if you guys are in the bathroom for like 30 minutes, I just know nothing good is happening there. So a lot of the weird, weird things you have to like think you wouldn't explain, you have to over-explain here. One of the things that we thought was a common sense thing is maybe don't bring drugs on our trip. And yeah, we go to Las Cruces, New Mexico, and there's a kid named Reagan who decides he wants to sneak some weed on the trip. And I find out about this through the grapevine, uh, and I decide to tell Reagan that I'm going to um, send him home. So I bang on his door in the middle of the night, and I scare him. I'm like, yo, the police are outside, the, the drug dogs are here, they smell the weed, they're going to get you. Uh, none of this is true, but I'm trying to convince him about the love of God. And so I'm, <laughs> and so I'm like, yo, they're all out here. Uh, they're coming for you, bro. And he was like, oh, man, no, no, no. I'm like, all right. That's cool, guys. We're good. They're gone now. 
Um, and I'm like, Reagan, I, I really, I'm really disappointed in you. And I want to send you home. And I really did want to send him home, but I could not afford to. We didn't budget to send him home. And so I said, I'm going to keep you here because of grace. <laughs> I want you to know that I'm, I'm really disappointed. You let me down with this. This is not what you're called to. We're doing, we're doing something much more important here. Uh, I take the weed from him. And I tell him, you're on thin ice with me. I'm not sending you home, but I'm telling your mom the moment we get back. And you're on thin ice, so I'm going to put you on a different working site. And so Reagan does what all youth do whenever you come down on them. Like, you're the one that got in trouble, so don't get mad at me. But he's, he's, he's a really vehement turd for the rest of the day. Next day comes around. Reagan's not working well. He's just kind of like trying to obstruct things. Uh, day after that, we actually need Reagan's help. We say, Reagan, like, you're one of the only folks that speak Spanish here. We have a work site that none of us can interpret. Can you come and speak Spanish for us? And he's like, cool. So he comes over there, and he does a great job. Kills it. Next day, Reagan asks if he can go to a different work site. He wants to help out with the soccer camp. I'm like, all right, cool. He goes to the soccer camp. Reagan comes alive in the work. Starts to serve like I've never seen him serve before. That night, takes worship very seriously. The next day, Reagan is like killing it. I've never seen this kid. He's like super saint. He can go plant a church right now. Like Reagan is on top of it. That night, we go to worship. Reagan decides to give his life to Jesus. Reagan gets baptized before we leave the trip. We come home and I'm thinking, Lord, something happens when we go. Something special happens when we're sent and we're on mission and we get outside of our comfort zones. Even in the brokenness of it, you transform not just the place. Las Cruces, New Mexico was probably blessed by us, but really I saw Reagan's life get transformed because he chose to go. When we come home, if you ever come home from a mission trip with kids, you probably know that it's like shepherding cats to get them where they're supposed to go. And so I'm just super tired and worn now and I want them to go back to their owners. And so I'm like, released. <laughs> you guys can go. Uh, and I forgot, honestly, to tell Reagan's mom about the weed. If I'm being totally honest with you, I forgot that I took the weed from Reagan. I forgot that I put Reagan's weed in my bag. I forgot that for two years. <laughs> I didn't find out about it until 2020, my last flight of 2020 at a TSA checkout line. I opened my bag. I just got a new, a new, new tablet. I open my bag, and I, you know, they tell you to take your tablet and your laptops out, so I take my laptop out as normal. I take my tablet out, and I take it out, I'm like, oh my God. The hot stuff is right here. This bald TSA guy looks at me, and I'm like, bro, quit looking at me. There's nothing going on over here. Mind your business. He looks away. I'm sweating profusely. There are three people ahead of me, and I'm trying to make sense of what we do in life right now. So the first person goes, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, uh, I'm going to just swallow the whole thing right now. Just swallow it. Um, I decided against it. <laughs> uh, I didn't swallow the thing. Uh, next person goes, now it's just me and another dude. And I'm like, all right, I'm just going to throw the whole bag away. That won't look suspicious at all. Ball guy makes eye contact with me. I'm like, okay, my bag, won't throw it away. Uh, last person goes, it's just me, and I accept my fate. I know it's about to happen. I take my cell phone out. I'm texting my wife. I'm like, hey, babe, you're going to hear some weird things about me in the news. Uh, I just want you to know that I love you. Put something on my books. Tell the kids about me. I was a great man. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm envisioning this going really, really bad. I'm seeing like the headlines, like youth pastor secretly a drug meal for the cartel, like an episode of Breaking Bad, church edition. Like I'm, I'm really nervous about what's about to happen here. I put my phone back in the bag. I go through the thing. Of course, the bag goes in. They flag it. Dude looks at me and says, is this your bag? And I'm like, yeah. And I want to say, there's a kid named Reagan. Go get him. But my, I can't speak. I'm like, yeah, it's my bag. Dude reaches in and pulls my phone out. He says, you have to take your phone out, sir. And I was like, is that the only suspicious thing <laughs> you see in there? And he was like, yeah, just take your phone out next time. Puts it back in there. He didn't see it. He gives me the bag. I walk away. As soon as I hit a corner, I throw the whole bag away, phone included. 
I get on the plane, I fly back, and I am praying and meditating how I'm going to kill Reagan the moment I see him. And while I'm on the flight, I'm thinking about this idea of going and being sent and traveling around and what it looks like for us to go and be sent carrying things that we have no business carrying. And what it means for us to travel around with somebody else's guilt or somebody else's narrative or somebody else's shame that we're wearing and we don't even know where it came from. I'd imagine that when Moses' name is called, he does not want to be seen. I'd imagine when all of us hear the call to go, to be sent, there's a laundry list of things that we can think of that disqualify us. I think of the Lord's voice to Adam and Eve whenever they say that they're naked and they're hiding. And the Lord says, who told you that? Where'd you get that? That's not yours to carry. Why do you have that idea about yourself? Why do you have this idea about what I've called you to? The idea that we go carrying something other than God's character, I think, leads to, to exhaustion and burnout. Ultimately, friends, we are sent. Ultimately, God is calling. Ultimately, he feels right alongside us. The beauty of this is he's not calling us to carry a ministry that has not first hit home. He is for you. This gospel you learn about, this gospel you're preparing to carry, it is for you. The grace you want to minister to the people God has called you to, he has that for you. And let that sit within you. Permeate all that you are. And then just be honest with the God that calls you. Be the person he's called. Understand that we can take our feelings and our emotions to God. Hebrews 4 says that we have a high priest that gets it. He can intercede on our behalf because he's experienced everything that we've experienced. He feels. We don't have to be passive aggressive with him. He feels. And if you are sent, as you are sent, as you go, know that you go carrying his love. I'm going to read a poem for us, and I'm out of here. This poem is called Honest. He says, love needs truth to breathe. Truth says, it ain't seen me in a while. He says, look and be honest. Honest says, I'm not all that perfect. I'm not in the word like I'm supposed to be. How am I too busy to pray, but I got time to bow my head before you two. I ain't half as put together as I let on. I know how they see me. I care too much about their opinions. I let their evaluations dress my confidence. Truth says you got a lot of hurt. You're stuffing 2x problems behind a medium facade. That burden is getting heavy. You don't like to ask for help. Truth be told, you don't really want help to come some days. He say, fountain from desert. He say, dancing from morning. But your heart's grown used to the stillness. Weeds choking steps. Root itself in meadow, buried your feelings in a field. Use those tears to water wallflowers and silence the song. He say, graves be gardens. Say beauty from ashes, but you fist, your fist clenched dust. Like a lover in the arms of a soldier come home. He say, war be over. He say, sinner turn child now. Say, freedom will cost you if the chains have grown comfortable. If the heart has grown calloused, if complacency drips like wet cement poured over a soul that's settled, you've not forgotten to breathe. You've simply scarfed this breath down too quickly. Missed how sweet it is to fill those lungs, forgot to notice the taste of gift every inhale is seasoned with. Your life is too precious to live so loosely. 
You've been given more grace than earning will ever allow you to notice. You will always be more loved than you deserve, and that's not a crime, that's Christ. Stop hiding the wounds that healing wants to find. He says, honest scrubs hard, but it's not trying to hurt you. Honest says there's something beautiful underneath it all. He says, truth always knows where to find me. Truth says maps and mirrors are kin. You're not perfect and that's the point. He says he knows you like air knows sky. Says he still loves you like lungs love breath. He say always will. He say always. Amen.